You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for August 13th, 2023, the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend John Kennedy. It's based on Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. So the first day of school, at least in the New Canaan public schools, is just about two weeks away. Uh, my condolences to those affected by this, or maybe... Um, Maybe this is a joyous thing when your kids get out of your hair a little bit. Um, But today I'm going to be talking about school in the world of first century Judaism. This is, of course, the world of Jesus. And I'm going to talk about how understanding that might help us go beneath the surface, if you will, of today's story of Jesus walking on the surface of the water. I'm going to be talking a little bit about rabbis and their tradition of scriptural interpretation, so I hope you will allow for a little bit of creative uh, scriptural interpretation in what follows. So at the very heart of education in the ancient Jewish world was the Torah. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, uh, traditionally known as the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Torah is translated as guidance, law, instruction, uh, or even the way. So um, this was the heart of education in Jesus' day. Now, the particulars of what exactly school looked like in Jesus' lifetime uh, is a matter of, of some debate, but we do know that education, and particularly religious education, was of the highest importance. We have writings from Josephus, the first century A.D. Jewish historian, as well as from Philo, the first century B.C. Jewish philosopher, uh, both attesting to the fact that children from a very young age were instructed in the Torah and in tradition. And based on evidence we have from the Mishnah and other Jewish sources, it's possible that Jesus, uh, education in Jesus' day looked something like this. Beginning at around six years old, uh, children would go to school to study and learn the Torah. Uh, This was probably held in a local synagogue and taught by a local Torah teacher called a rabbi. Now this stage of instruction was called Bet Sefer, which means House of the Book. Uh, This lasted until around ten years old, and uh, during this time, uh, the Torah would be studied and learned quite thoroughly. In fact, it's possible that many students succeeded in memorizing the Torah, if you can imagine that. That's quite a hefty uh, page count, let me tell you. Now, uh, at this point, at around age 10, when this stage had been completed, most students would stop their education, or at least their, their school education, and go on and learn the family trade. But a select few who demonstrated a particular aptitude for this kind of learning, this kind of study, would go on to a second stage uh, known as Bet Talmud or Bet Midrash, meaning house of learning or study. And this involved the study, uh, further study of tradition, as well as the rest of the Bible. Uh, so we're talking all, everything from, uh, well, all of Genesis uh, through Malachi. Uh, this is a, a lot. If you look at a Bible, a Christian Bible, that comprises most of it. The New Testament is quite short. So this is a lot of studying, especially if, um, like with the first stage, students are memorizing the text. It's just astonishing to think about the capacity 
of uh, people in this in this culture in this time to memorize texts, but it far outstrips what we're capable of nowadays. Simply because people in those days needed their memories more, because less was written down, less written material was available, and so therefore they exercised their memories more. But at any rate, this would wrap up at around age 14 or 15, and. Uh, as with the first sort of graduation, with most going on to learn the family trade, uh, most of these, even select students, would go on to simply learn the family trade uh, and, and live that kind of life. But a select few of that select few would continue on. And the next thing to do was to find a rabbi who would take you on as a disciple. Now, um, a disciple is, of course, somebody who wants to know what their rabbi knows, but more to the point that they want to be like the rabbi. They want to do what the rabbi does. Now, rabbis had different interpretations of scripture and different ways of living it out. And a rabbi's set of instructions and interpretations was known as their yoke. So when we hear Jesus say something like, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's talking exactly about this sort of thing. He's using a rabbinic idiom, which he uh, so often did in the scriptures. So a prospective student would come to a, a rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to take your yoke upon me. Um, I want to be your disciple. Well, the rabbi would question them, sort of examine them to see, you know, if they have what it takes, if they have the right stuff, if they know their scriptures, if they know the uh, tradition, if they know theology. Essentially, they would ask them questions about the Torah, about the prophets, about oral tradition, etc. Now, of course, the rabbi would uh, accept some students, but he would dismiss others. Those who were dismissed would be dismissed with the blessing, saying, go, learn the family trade, you know, live a good and prosperous life. But being a rabbi is probably not for you. Uh, but if he did think that this was somebody he wanted to take on, if he did think this is somebody who has the right stuff, he would say, come, follow me. Does that sound familiar? So what Jesus says when he calls disciples. Again, Jesus is speaking as a rabbi, using a familiar, known expression to say, come, follow me, means I'm a rabbi, I want you to be my disciple. So at this, a, a student who got the call, if you will, would leave a family, friends, their village, everything to follow this rabbi. They would devote their entire life to following their rabbi, to learning what they know, to doing what they do, to being like them. So let's look at this uh, alongside the call of some of Jesus' disciples. We have the call of Peter and Andrew uh, along the Sea of Galilee. They are fishermen, uh, mending their nets, and Jesus says, come, follow me. And we all know the story, at least most of us do. They drop their nets right away, and they follow him. Now, that might sound like kind of cartoonish or a little bit you know, uh, of a caricature of real life. I mean, these are real guys with a real profession, a real uh, life that, that um, they uh, knew and, and that supported them. How could they just drop their nets, drop their livelihood, and follow this guy? Well, we can understand perhaps why they would do this when we think about them being fishermen, right? Because being a fisherman learned, means they had learned their family trait, which means they didn't make the cut, which means they were not rabbi material. But here comes a rabbi, and he says, come, follow me. Well, of course they drop their nets. I mean, in this culture, in this uh, time, there was nothing better than being called by a rabbi. Rabbis were among the most esteemed, respected people in Jewish culture. So it was a great honor to be called in this way. 
And so it's no mystery then that Peter and Andrew and other disciples would go drop their nets and follow Jesus. It's really an astonishing thing that Jesus chose B-team, JV people to be the core of his disciples. Uh, These were people that didn't make the cut. In in the book of Acts, they are described by religious authorities as uh, unschooled, ordinary men. But nonetheless, Jesus wanted them. Nonetheless, Jesus thought they had what it takes. And of course, they go on to change the course of human history. So I guess he was right. So let's look at today's passage about the walking on water uh, in this light. Of course, we have the disciples in the boat. They're going to the other side of the sea and a storm kicks up, and they are naturally and quite rightly terrified because it's a very dangerous thing to be uh, in a boat alone in the middle of a great storm. Uh, They see Jesus coming to them. He's walking on the water, but instead of being comforted by his appearance, they're actually terrified because they think he's a ghost. So he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Peter, always the first to speak, says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the waves. Well, why, why would he say this? I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous, right? Why would Peter want to walk on the water with Jesus? Well, it's because he's Jesus' disciple. Jesus is his rabbi. Jesus has called him. And being a disciple is all about doing what you see your rabbi doing. So he says, Jesus, you're walking on the water. Well, I want to do that too. So Jesus says, come. And he's actually doing it. Peter succeeds. He can walk on the water. It's astonishing. It's impossible, right? But then what happens? He notices the strong wind. He becomes frightened. He gets distracted, and he starts to sink. And he says, Lord, save me. So Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him, and he says, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now the question here is, what did Peter doubt? I mean, maybe earlier he doubted that it was Jesus, but at this point it's quite clear that it's Jesus. There's no doubt about that. And it's no doubt that Jesus has the power to walk on water. He's not doubting Jesus. He seems to be doubting that he can do what Jesus told him to do, that he can walk on the waves along with Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't have chosen him if he didn't think he could do it. Jesus wouldn't have called him to come walk on the water if he didn't think he could do it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me. I chose you. And a rabbi in first century Judaism did not choose disciples unless they thought they could do what he does. Unless they thought, unless he thought that they could be like him. We see this reflected in the Great Commission, which closes Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel we're making our way through right now. Jesus says, Go into all nations baptizing, like we're doing today, and uh, teaching them to do everything that I have taught you. And he says, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In some real way, Jesus is leaving what he began in the hands of his disciples, in the hands of disciples of every generation that has followed. Clearly, Jesus believes that we can do it. Jesus believes that we have what it takes. Jesus, in fact, gives us what we need to do it, of course. He has given us his very self and given us his very spirit, the spirit that will be given to those to be baptized this morning. So what if we can actually be the people that God created us to be? What if we can really love and live like Jesus? What if we can really be the sorts of people we want to be, who act on the opportunities all around us to be kind, to do the right thing, of people who exhibit 
and, and exemplify love and compassion and peace and hope, hope and joy and other virtues that we, we long to embody but sometimes maybe doubt that we can. Because the world so often seems to be telling us that we're not good enough, right? Could be our grades, our test scores, our, our college admissions, our SATs, our, our income brackets, our social media feeds. Those are basically engineered to tell us that we're not good enough. But Jesus has chosen us. He's chosen every one of you. You can be like him. And I know so many in our community already are like Jesus to a degree, to a degree that's just astonishing and beautiful. Evidence that this is true. As Paul says in the excerpt from the letter to the Romans we heard this morning, uh, the word is near you, in your heart. It's not just words, but the word as Jesus, the ultimate word of God. Jesus is near us, he's in our heart, and he's calling to us to come to him, to do what he does, to be like him. So may we drop everything that stands in the way of this, like Peter and Andrew dropped their nets, and may we follow our rabbi ever more closely. Amen. can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.